Welcome to the Two Steps Ahead podcast. My name is Molly Elmore with Clever Hummingbird. And today we're going to talk about the mission for this particular podcast. And, and pretty much every episode I have planned out centers around one simple concept, which is I'm trying to figure out what's happening with our money system. Over the past decade or so, we've seen some big shifts, the introduction of cryptocurrencies. We've seen the a move away from this sort of US dollar centric world. And it's really pointed to a lot of indicators that something big is going to happen with our money system. And a lot of people have theories. I've, I kind of read about this from people who are in the political arena, people who are in economists, people who are in the financial investing space, and people who are in the crypto blockchain space. And there's a lot of commonality, but a lot of contradiction. So my mission here with this podcast is to help us all figure out what's the next deal with money. Are we going to all have new money? Is are we going to have a different version of our current money? Will we Will this benefit us as citizens? Will this restrict us as citizens? These are a lot of big questions that I'm looking to answer. And my research so far has pointed to a couple of things. I'm going to give a, a nice brief high-level summary of that in this particular episode. But the purpose of this podcast is to really dig down, figure out what's happening, where is this headed, and then how can we prepare and kind of use this to our advantage because with every major change in a world order or a financial order there's usually winners and losers and my goal is to for me to personally stay two steps ahead and end up on the right side and have all of you who are listening to this uh, join me so a couple things that we've seen the first thing is we are shifting away from this what's called a unipolar world so ever since 1944 when the leaders of the G6 nations or the major Western countries um, signed an agreement called the Bretton Woods Agreement. The US dollar was named the global reserve currency. And that means that global trade is done in dollars, which actually is, is logistically a simpler thing because if every country who traded with other countries had to pay for stuff in a different currency each time, it would be a pain. You'd have to have all these different currencies. You'd have to keep track of exchange rates. You would have to um, learn how to price all these things in every currency, and that would you know, be logistically challenging. So it was easier to have one currency that everything is based on. Now, the, there was another proposal at the time to use what was called the Bancor, which is like a basket currency, which would not have one nation in charge, but the decision was made to have the U.S., dollar be the reserve currency. Now this is good and bad as are most major decisions. It was good for the strength of the dollar because every country constantly needed to have dollars. Every country that traded, which is pretty much everybody. So there, you know, basic law of supply and demand, the more demand there is for something, the higher its value. So the value of the dollar was always very high. And the other reality was after World War II, a lot of nations that participated in the war, namely Germany and Japan, um, and other parts of Europe were really devastated physically, like bombs, war zones. People were just broken mentally, emotionally. 
And the economies in these places were just wrecked. I mean, the war went on for years. So the deal was, all right, let's, I mean, the Americans had the most money at the end because there had been no war fought on U.S. soil, with the exception of Pearl Harbor. Um, so the, the Americans had the most gold at the end of the war. So the deal was, all right, let's open up the American market to products produced elsewhere. Let's use Japan as an example. So Japanese products are made. They're exported to the U.S. The U.S. becomes this major market of consumers. This gives the Japanese economy a chance to rebuild itself as exporters. And this works out best for Japanese economy if the Japanese yen is, is lower valued than the dollar. Because what that means then is to Americans, Japanese products feel inexpensive because of the exchange rate. They actually, in the Bretton Woods Agreement, they created these fixed exchange rates so that they wouldn't have this variation um, in prices, like they were all held pretty solid. And they were tied to gold. So it was ideally this very stable monetary system. Every trade was, all trade was done in dollars. This gave the rebuilding nations the opportunity to kind of create new economies through exporting Germany and Japan specifically. Uh, the, all these currencies were essentially all tied back to gold, which has long been believed to be the, you know, the best monetary unit. Uh, people trust gold and have trusted it for centuries. So this system actually worked really well for a couple of decades. The problem was, is that the U S kind of abuse this power of being the reserve currency and spent more money than they had in gold reserves. Uh, this was primarily from the Vietnam War, which was very expensive, and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society like social program. So this led to this temptation, I guess, comes up a lot with people who can issue a powerful currency like the dollar. It gets just too tempting to print more than you actually should or can, you know, ethically. And this is when the French figured this out. They called Nixon's bluff and they sent this barge over to the U.S. for to swap in their reserves for actual gold. And there just simply wasn't enough. So Nixon closed the window. And that ended this era of kind of sound money for the most part, where money was backed by gold and everybody's exchange rates were fixed. And there was another thing that happened in the 70s, which was the Americans made a deal with this um, the OPEC nations, I think primarily through Saudi Arabia, to only sell oil globally in dollars. And in exchange, the American military would not only protect the Saudis, but they would protect the global supply chain. This is the, the sort of situation that all of us grew up in uh, and sort of took for granted that, you know, things were shipped around the world and I never like worried that some package of mine was going to get hijacked by pirates. And the U.S. military, the Navy specifically, really took on this role of policing the global supply chain. And this gave the American military, you know, a very powerful role and they had the ability and I think they felt the permission to be the global cop of the, the world. And if you didn't align with U.S. political interests, then there were consequences like sanctions or you got drop, bombs dropped on you. And this, uh, you know, didn't go over very well with every country and created a lot of resentment uh, in other nations that the U.S., you know, there's a double standard. The U.S. could do whatever they wanted, but if anybody else tried to do what they wanted, there were consequences. 
There's also this other unfair element in that the U.S. government, with the support of the Fed, who, who is not part of the U.S. government but often closely aligned, they have the ability to create money out of nothing. And so the Federal Reserve can issue reserves, which can be used to buy things like oil and commodities. And they can issue those reserves from nothing. So this kind of means you can buy whatever you want in, in an infinite amount. Like when you can print your own money and that money is accepted globally, there isn't much you can't buy. Whereas every other nation outside of the U.S. has to work really hard to buy that, those same things. They have to either drill for oil or mine for gold or mine for diamonds or grow food or, you know, do all sorts of laborious energy intensive things to buy the same amount of stuff. And I can see the, the resentment there that it's not really fair that one country can do all those things without needing to expend all those resources or that, that amount of energy where the U.S. government doesn't really have to do that. So this has kind of created this frustration and some of the large uh, nations like Russia and China specifically have expressed clearly their interest to move outside of the dollar system and to trade with each other in a different currency because it just there aren't really many advantages to them to do it in the dollar system. And as this has got particularly accentuated in the past couple of years because so many dollars have entered circulation that we're seeing inflation kind of across the board. And while the dollar value is very strong right now, um, there's still a lot of inflation even within the US. So that means that if you are a country like China and you're trading in dollars and you're getting your profit in dollars and you're storing your profit in dollars, your profit is losing value. It's not holding its value over time due to inflation. And we're talking trillions of dollars, so it doesn't really make a lot of sense to hold wealth in dollars in an inflationary period like we have right now. So the BRICS nations, I mean, this is sort of one of the, the big signposts for a shift to a new monetary system. The BRICS nations have publicly stated that they are aligned. BRICS stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. They are aligned to trade with each other and they plan to issue a currency called a basket currency that is not tied to one specific nation. It's going to be a weighted average, it's my understanding, of not only individual currencies, but it will include some commodities as well, potentially gold, oil, or some kind of food. I'm going to dig into this more deeply in a, in a um, standalone episode because it's kind of a complicated concept, this idea of a basket currency that's tied to something like oil because there's lots of different kinds of oil so I don't my understanding is not all oil is even valued at the same amount so we'll dig into that later but the point is is that they have publicly stated to the world we plan to trade outside of the dollar system which is a massive change from where we are now and then recently in the last couple of weeks we've heard more chatter that Saudi Arabia is also interested in joining this BRICS alliance as is uh, Venezuela Iran Turkey, there's a lot of chatter that other nations want to move. And the BRICS nations, like the current group that they are, that's like 40% of the world. So if 40% of your customer base went away, it would have a big impact on your business. So if 40% of the countries 
buying and selling things in dollars all of a sudden stop doing that, it would absolutely affect the dollar value substantially. So that's signpost number one. All right, new second signpost number two is the growth of blockchain and digital assets, cryptocurrencies. Now, Bitcoin came on the scene, I guess like 13 years ago now, around 2009, and has really developed into its own asset, has a very cult-like following. And it's really kind of proven that you can own assets virtually in a way that really wasn't possible before. Um, I, I love the idea that I can own an asset on the blockchain without needing this third party, like a PayPal or a bank to guard that for me. Like, you know, if I buy some stocks on E-Trade, do I really own those stocks? And if I, like, I don't even know how I would buy a stock so that I would literally own it aside from getting, I guess, paperwork from the company that I'm like an official shareholder, which I don't think they would do for somebody who only owned a little bit. So up until blockchain, there really wasn't a, a way for smaller retail investors like us to lit actually own something in terms of an investment. And then there's also this neat thing with um, digital assets in terms of payments that I can pay you without having to tell anyone else about it. Like, we can have a private transaction. I might owe you 20 bucks. So I'm going to just send you 20 bucks via digital asset crypto wallet. And it doesn't involve anyone. It's not anyone's business. We're not, it's not necessarily, you know, something I need to report to the IRS. Like, let's say you paid for my dinner and I want to pay you back. Like not every transaction needs to be a public thing. And that's sort of one of the cool, beautiful things about the digital asset space is it enables people to send money privately. And that's really appealing, I think, to a lot of people. Uh, cash always had that role. I could always give you cash without anyone knowing or caring, but it's kind of a pain for me to give you cash if you are, you know, hundreds of miles away from me. So the question became is how could I send you money if you're not physically near me in the same way that I could give you cash if you were physically, you know, in front of me. So digital assets like Bitcoin or even Ethereum or Ether or XRP, these all kind of allow that person-to-person -person transaction, which has been a real threat and challenge to the banking establishment. I will absolutely do a separate episode on the origin of the Bitcoin and my own research as to who the founder Satoshi Nakamoto is. That is one of my favorite rabbit holes of all the rabbit holes because I think it is a fascinating one. And I, I'm amazed when people are really into Bitcoin and don't think it matters who the founder is. Because I really do think it matters. I think there's things that we don't necessarily think about unless you know the motivation of the person who created the thing. One of my biggest digital asset holdings and areas of interest is XRP and Ripple. And we'll definitely talk about them a lot in this podcast. Uh, but Ripple has developed a lot of relationships with banks and central banks to be a part of this new financial system that we're looking to understand and how they play that role specifically, I think is a great topic. I am very confident that they have a place in it and that they will be used as a, or the XRP token will be used as a bridge currency to allow banks to send money to other banks much more quickly and at a lower cost, which is a, 
a great improvement. The best technological improvements, in my opinion, solve a painful and expensive problem, and they make life better for everyone. That's not the case with all things that are going to come with digital assets and crypto and you know central bank digital currencies, for example. Those aren't necessarily going to benefit us, so I'm not a big fan. Uh, but I think that this things that XRP does for banks um, is massively helpful. The other data point number three to point to a new financial system, new monetary system, is what's going on with the bond and stock markets. I never really paid much attention to the bond market until a couple of months ago when I started to have my attention drawn to the fact that the bond markets have been a mess recently and the bond markets historically are very boring and stable and like a whole lot of nothing's going on generally with bond markets. They are usually considered to be as safe an investment as cash, um, although you do get, you know, a, a modest return uh, compared to cash. But in the last couple months, we've seen incredible volatility, which is not a good thing at all. And it is pointed to me to dig into this and sort of look into some research and test pilot projects that have been done to move the bond market to the blockchain. We're going to talk about, I've done episodes on YouTube if you want to look them up and on Twitter about Project Ion, and I'll do a new one on Project Guardian, which are two pilot projects to test various elements of financial markets like stock market, bond market via blockchain. So Project Ion was a way to test or pilot project, whatever you want to call it, the settlement of stock transactions using the blockchain. So there's an also a concept that's important to understand this whole world, which is the difference between payments and settlements. So if I am handling payments, it's kind of like invoicing. Like I could tell you, I could send you an invoice by email that, you know, for a thousand dollars and you get that invoice and you agree to pay that invoice and you send me back an email that confirms that yes you will be you've you've agreed to pay the thousand dollars that's sort of the payment side we've ha communicated about a transaction and we've both agreed and voiced our you know affirmation that the transaction is a good one but no money actually changed hands just because you send me an invoice and i agree to pay it like this minute you don't have the money right away. Like, go check your bank account. It is not there instantly. It takes a couple of days for the settlement part to happen, for the funds to actually move from, you know, to be debited from one bank account and credited to another bank account. And this is the slow part of the process. And this is really where XRP and digital assets solve a major problem, that they would allow these transactions to be settled practically instantly, you know, within a couple of seconds. And they've tested project ion actually i think it used the token xdc which is a fabulous token in the supply chain and trade finance space but essentially it allows value which is another word for money to be moved from one person to another very very quickly and i don't see any reason why the financial markets would not want to move forward with this it will make their operations much more profitable and it solves some big problems that these delays create, namely counterparty risk, meaning 
you could agree to buy some stock, but because it takes a couple of days to settle, you might be a flake and not have the money. And so this stock was sort of in limbo for a couple of days because they didn't know you weren't going to have the money for it, where it could have been owned by somebody else for those couple of days. It also, there, there needs to be staff to manage all this sort of days of settlement to keep track of who's paid what and who didn't work out. And all these sort of inefficiencies come up because it takes a long time for this stuff to settle. So a digital asset doing that would mean these departments would, could just be eliminated, which kind of sucks for the people that work in those departments, but um, in terms of overhead and business efficiency, it would save these financial markets and the, the sort of players, the businesses in the financial markets, a lot of money. So that is the major reason why I think that these markets will absolutely use blockchains for settlements. There's also this idea that the bond markets can trade using DeFi platforms. Uh, so we'll kind of go into what DeFi is and how that relates to this in another episode, but just know that these are essentially exchanges where you could buy and sell bonds without needing a person or a company to sort of manage that in a centralized way. It's all kind of done through automated smart contracts, which are like computer programs where you could just program in rules. Hey, I want to buy this bond if XYZ conditions occur and you have the money for it. You know, it's confirmed that you have the ability to pay for it. And so if the seller wants to sell at the conditions that you want to buy, it's all kind of done automatically and it could run 24 seven. You wouldn't have to worry about this whole counterparty risk, like of people not having the money it would all be kind of managed in an automated fashion. That's why a lot of these DeFi exchanges have ever used something like Uniswap or PancakeSwap. They run kind of in that fashion. And I've never, I mean, I've used them quite a bit. I've never had a problem um, because they only execute if those conditions are met, that the price is right and you've got the money all set. And so the bond markets could run that way. They could be global. And they would also, the big thing that's important to know is they would be permissioned meaning not everybody gets to go and trade in the bond market. You have to be a institutional investor or you have to work at a certain company. And so it kind of brings up this new concept, which is not something retail crypto people have, but we haven't really been used to this yet. The idea that you're not allowed to access a particular blockchain or a ledger on a blockchain if you don't have an NFT, for example. So it kind of introduces this idea of how the institutional finance world could use blockchains, but in a way that it's still a walled garden. And that's sort of the next data point that confirmed to me that yes, the new money system is coming, it's gonna use digital assets, but it won't be open to everyone in the same way that you and I can't go and trade in certain, you know, we can't go to the stock exchange and trade on the floor. You have to sort of have permission to do that. You have to be licensed or have the work at the right company or whatever. All right. The next thing that's important to understand in this major shift is that if, you know, this is not like anything we've ever lived through before, moving to a new financial system, new currencies, we're seeing massive inflation. In a lot of these currencies, they've been overprinted. There's been little restraint in terms of, um, conservative, like fiscal management. A lot of countries, including the U S absolutely the U S have just spent money like it's like they're never going to pay it back. Like the deficit at this point is I think it's 31 trillion maybe. 
there's just not enough money to pay it back. So I, it looks at this point like there's no intentions of paying it back, which brings up this idea of just saying, screw it. Let's just close up shop and reopen a new one. Some people call this a debt jubilee. Some people call it a currency reset. Uh, Nasara, Jasara, there's a lot of labels for what this concept would mean. And it's hard to figure out what's like people making stuff up and speculating and what do we really have evidence and data points for. So that will be also something I'm looking to cover with all of you in this podcast is will they literally collapse the currencies of the world and start over with something new? And how would that work? Will we go back to gold-backed currencies? Will we have this basket currency? I, I don't know. We're going to figure that out here. So tying into that brings up this other thing that's really important to understand, not only with the war with Ukraine, but with the problems going on with Europe, is that there's a lot of factions to this situation. So it's long been known that there is a group of very, very wealthy people who are kind of the ruling class of the world. These are the European like royalty people, the people who own banks, you know, the uber wealthy of the world who doesn't really live in our world and has their own set of rules. It's not a secret that this group has a lot of influence and power. Now, what is surprising to know is that they're not all on the same team. They don't all work together. And there are multiple, we can, we can call them a cartel because they function like that, or kind of like a mob family, to be honest, or even Game of Thrones, where you have these ruling families and they all have their own agenda. They have their own interests to protect. And a lot of times their interests align and everything's good and peaceful. But we are in an itch, a situation right now where they are not all aligned. They don't all want the same thing. And as we go through this major shift with money, there's a, a land grab, a power grab for who gets to be in charge and who gets to use this shift to their advantage. Now, the easiest group to identify are the kind of Great Reset slash World Economic Forum slash, you know, European aristocrats because we have known about them for a long time. These are the this is the group of people who like started colonies in the US and in Africa in South America. I mean, they have a history of using their wealth to basically just take over other places as colonies, and they do that because they want the stuff that is made in colonies. They don't really care about the colonists ever. What they want is the colonists to make stuff, make oil, make food, make Diamonds, you know, there's a whole lot of resources that are valuable in the global marketplace that these European colonists have long wanted uh, to exploit. Now, being a colonizer is tough business. The colonists end up rebelling. That's happened, I think, pretty much everywhere. And they tend to lose their power. And it's been a big setback for them over the last 200 years. You know, the, the British and the European royalists, you know, they used to have a good thing going back in the 1800s and early 1900s where they had these colonies that basically worked for free and provided them with all these resources. And they're not too happy with our modern world where we have this middle class who can, you know, we can make lots of opportunities for ourselves and better our situation. And in many cases, a lot of middle class people have become very, very wealthy. 
Now, this European aristocrat crowd, there's one thing that is very true about them, and is that they genuinely believe they are better than us, and that we are the hired help, and that we belong in our place as lowly peasants. Um, you can see this, if you ever watch interviews with some of these people, you know, they don't hide their arrogance. They truly believe they are superior. I mean, they actually believe they're genetically superior, which is why they tend to only marry within their own bloodlines. There is this uh, belief that we don't deserve the same opportunities that they deserve. It's kind of this, you know, Marie Antoinette, you know, rules for thee, not for me. And there's two sets of rules, one for them and one for us. And that really ties into a lot of what is happening right now. Uh, and they are one faction in this cartel. But there are other factions in other countries. We'll use another faction, for example, is the Wall Street slash Federal Reserve, another group of very wealthy, powerful people. But they are not interested in being subservient to the European colonizers. They were colonists a long time ago, and they broke free and have zero intentions of being subjugated to the European royalists ever again. So right now we see a big battle going on between the Fed and the European banks, which is, which is the interesting thing about the high interest rates. There's sort of a public face that this is being done to combat inflation, but it actually is more about the war between European groups. We're going to call them Davos, the war between Davos and Wall Street. Fascinating rabbit hole. I spent a lot of time digging into this. It really uh, adds some color and in intrigue to the current situation. And this ties into Russia and China as well. Uh, the Davos crowd hates Russians because they've tried to colonize them for a long time. Russia has a lot of resources. The colonizers would love to have had all those resources at their disposal, but Russia has been a real pain in the neck for centuries and definitely decades that they refuse to be colonized. And so they hate the Russians. And that, that's sort of, I grew up in an era where the Russians were always the bad guys. There was sort of a brief period, I think, when sort of the Al-Qaeda Middle East movie, you know, movies always sort of portray your typical bad guy. There was a shift from the Russians being the bad guys to being kind of Islamic terrorist bad guy. And now I think we're going to see a shift back to the Russian bad guy. And the Chinese also have a history of being colonized by this European crowd. There were the opium wars back in the 1800s. Um, it's not an area that I'm terribly educated on, to be honest, but we are seeing a lot of indicators right now that China is not interested in being subservient to this Davos crowd either. And this doesn't mean that any of these groups are good, by the way. They all have their own agenda. The Federal Reserve, China, Russia, Davos, they all will sacrifice to meet their goals. I don't think there's any good guys necessarily in this fight. And a lot of innocent people probably will suffer collateral damage as this global world war kind of plays out. But my point about this is something that we're going to talk about and cover deeply in this podcast is that they are not all aligned. And so there isn't this one group of elites, rich elites, rich globalists who are fighting against the people. There are separate factions within this. They all are clever and they have spies and have infiltrated each other's groups in a you know smart way to try to undermine their opponents. But there's a lot of game theory going on. 
And this war has been waged for a while now. We've seen an information war. We've seen currency wars. Right now, there's an actual tactical war going on in Ukraine. But it's a bigger, bigger thing. And it all affects, in my opinion, where the money system is going. Because money makes the world go round. Nobody can buy food or oil or any resource without money. So the, the power... You know, the powerful players in this will be the ones who have control over the money supply. And right now that's dollars, but there's a real push to, to shift that and dethrone the dollar from its perch and maybe move to something like gold or oil, which is why this is all an interesting, an interesting time to be alive in history. Uh, when you dig into this, sometimes it can be like a little bit dark and upsetting, stressful. So I've really just made the intentional decision that I look at this like a game that we're watching and I just trust that in the end we're all going to be fine. It's an exciting time to be alive and I'm going to watch it with that excitement even if some things stress me out and are scary. I remind myself that this is it's happening regardless of whether I like it or not and there is little that I can personally do to change the global <laughs> stage but I can prepare myself I can take advantage of opportunities and I guess for me if I sort of know what's coming and can see what's ahead uh, when big changes happen it won't sort of take me by surprise and feel as much of a shock uh, and we can also help prepare our friends and neighbors as well. So that is the goal here in Two Steps Ahead podcast to tackle where is money going, how do geopolitical interests and events play into this, what role does the blockchain play in the future of money, and how can we all navigate this crazy exciting time together in a way that, you know, makes this kind of a fun ride to be on and not just a insane, crazy, scary time, so... All right, I will see you in the next episode and please join my community on Locals. Locals is a platform where we can all connect with each other. I do post in there. I will be putting these podcast episodes up there and I have a subscriber report that if you're interested in some more in-depth stuff, we can go into that as well. So please join me at twostepsahead.locals.com uh, and we can connect there as well. All right, I'll see you next time.